This is hell. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell and a dissenting opinion among liberals would be that liberalism needs to be reformed, reconsidered, reexamined, improved upon, fixed in any way in response to the rise of the far right, Trumpism, and the many conservative victories over the past several decades, including those within and against liberalism itself. For whatever reason, today's liberals and the current form of liberalism refuses to adapt and change. Sure, liberalism changed into an idea that was pro-market rather than pro-worker and supportive of military intervention instead of diplomacy, but it appears they ain't changing back. Instead, liberalism repeatedly doubled down on not only neoliberalism, but neoconservatism as well, prioritizing free market globalization over efforts at worldwide equality and war seemingly anywhere and everywhere instead of doing more to embrace freedom and liberty at home. In a few minutes, we'll find out what the hell happened to liberalism and why liberals refuse to acknowledge their mistakes when we have the return of historian Samuel Moyne, author of Liberalism Against Itself, Cold War Intellectuals and the Making of Our Times. Samuel is Chancellor Kent Professor of Law at and history at Yale University. He came to Yale from Harvard University where he was Jeremiah Smith Jr. Professor of Law and Professor of History. Before that, he spent uh, 13 years in the Columbia University History Department where he was mostly, or most recently, James Bryce Professor of European Legal History. At Columbia, he was given the Mark Van Doren Teaching Award, the 46th annual, by undergraduates. His areas of interest in legal scholarship include international law, human rights, the law of war, and legal thought in both historical and current perspective. In intellectual history, he has worked on a diverse range of subjects, especially 20th century European moral and political theory. Samuel has written several books in the fields of European intellectual history and human rights history. He was on This Is Hell back in 2018 to talk about his then-just-published book, Not Enough, Human Rights in an Unequal World. Samuel is also author of 2015's Christian Human Rights, which was based on his Mellon Distinguished Lectures at the University of Pennsylvania. His books have won the Morris Forkash Prize of the Journal of the History of Ideas and the Sybil Halpern Milton Memorial Book Prize of the German Studies Association. His writing has appeared in the Boston Review, the Chronicle of Higher Education, Dissent, The Nation, The New Republic, The New York Times, The Atlantic, The Guardian, Commonwealth, the London Review of Books, and The Wall Street Journal. You can follow Sam on Twitter at Samuel Moyne. Also, you can find our past interviews with Sam by going to thisishell.com and searching on his last name, Moyne, M-O-Y-N. Producing is Dan Kugler. Dan, how was your week? Week's been going good on the drive over. Um, that smell in the car that I thought I'd wait out <laughs> is still there and getting worse, so... Never a good idea to wait out the smell. Uh, you're not you're not driving with the parking brake on, are you? 
No. Okay. That's the I've, dri- I've driven with the windows down, <laughs> but uh, that's because of the smell. There was a really bad exhaust problem with a former producer's car on the former producer on the show with his car, and he would drive me up to Northwestern University to work at the studio up there, and the exhaust problem was so bad that it was single digits outside. We had to have the windows rolled down because the carbon monoxide was coming into the car. So we lovingly referred to his car as the Kevorkian because we thought for sure we were all going to die. So my week has been nothing but a run-up to this coming Saturday, September 30th, and the second annual 50th anniversary party for the bar downstairs from where I'm sitting right now. Carrie's Lounge, located at 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. Not only is Carrie celebrating 51 years in business, but it's also hosting the closing party of This Is Art, the annual art show that opens every year during our This Is Hell anniversary party, which happens every year on the second to last weekend in July. So special thanks to uh, Chicago artist Lisa Barcy for putting on another fantastic art show. And a quick announcement. Last Wednesday, only minutes before going on air, our guests told us that their publication requested we embargo last week's interview and show because they delayed the posting of the article we were about to discuss. That embargo was finally lifted very early this past Wednesday morning, one week after that interview was recorded. So that entire show and interview is now posted at our website, thisishell.com, and as well as all of our social media platforms. Uh, this is pretty unprecedented in our more than 27 years on air, but we felt the story was so important, and The Intercept kindly reached out to us about our guest story three weeks before the article would eventually go live. So we would be, and we did, break the news. That conversation and show, which, again, you can find at thisishell.com as well as on all of our social media platforms, was with The Intercept's Alice Sperry, who traveled to Ukraine in July and interviewed survivors of sexual violence at the hands of Russian soldiers. Alice also spoke with researchers, government officials, lawyers, and activists about the deepening fissures in Ukrainian society surrounding the question of whether those same victims or same survivors should be known as or seen as or viewed as victims or should be seen as collaborators with the Russian occupiers. Allegations that were made by their neighbors fueled by rumors in the fog of war. So it's a question of whether they are sexual violence survivors or whether they're collaborators. You can now find that intense interview as well as the entire Wednesday, August 20th show at thisishell.com. Dan, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? What could possibly be giving you hope? We'll share your question from hell answers as posted at Discord and Twitter coming up after our talk with Sam on how liberalism ate itself. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell, as always, wins their choice of This Is Hell merchandise. You can see all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us. You can post it on our Patreon, Discord, or uh, Welcome to the Hellhole Facebook group page. Or you can just email it to us at thisishellradio at gmail.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. Dan, what's Jeff t- talking about this week? Jeff MCs a cockfight between the Weimar Dadaists and the current Magaists. So coming up, liberalism's greatest enemy may be liberalism itself. Dan shares more of your answers to our most recent question from hell. We'll tell you what happened on this week's Patreon podcast exclusively for Patreon patrons at patreon.com slash thisishell. And we'll also tell you what's happening next week on the show. 
And, of course, like we were just saying, Jeff Dorchin will be delivering a moment of truth. Live from late capitalism where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing. This is hell, and one of the values that has seemingly been forgotten is that at one time liberalism was about freedom and liberty for all. But instead of the United States being what was once considered a beacon of hope, liberals, yes liberals, have seemingly turned their back on that universal idea. Here to explain returning to This Is Hell, historian Samuel Moyne is author of Liberalism Against Itself, Cold War Intellectuals, and the Making of Our Times. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Samuel. Hey, thanks so much for having me again, Chuck. It's great to have you on the show. I'm going to ask you a really basic, easy question at the beginning, but it's not a basic, easy question because it leads to a very complicated answer. You write Cold War liberalism was a catastrophe for liberalism. How was liberalism different prior to the Cold War from what it would become? The most basic concept and precept of your book. So, you know, most people don't understand that Americans came late to liberalism, which originated actually in continental Europe in the 19th century. The first self-styled liberals in in our country, with the exception of a a few during Reconstruction, were really um, kind of appearing after World War One in connection with the founding of the New Republic magazine. And they were really progressives, and they ended up paving the way for the New Deal. Um, if we go back to Europe, where liberalism began, it's it's really a kind of bid to um, like live out the promise of the French Revolution uh, and set up a society of freedom and equality for all in stable form, since. You know, whatever you think about the French Revolution, it didn't last, but its promise did. Uh, and so what I say is that as liberalism gets Americanized, um, you know, America takes the the global lead in the 20th century as the leading liberal power, um, things start to go wrong. Now, of course, FDR, Franklin Roosevelt, does kind of institutionalize the New Deal but then the Cold War comes after Franklin Roosevelt's death. And what I try to show is that liberal thinkers bef- first begin to give up on old school liberalism and invent a new kind. And my basic argument in the book is that this new theory of liberalism eventually kind of um, destroys the promise of, of old school liberalism. Um, and leads to things like neoliberalism and neoconservatism. The new post-World War II liberalism that these thinkers forge is really about freedom against the state. Um, and that that really shifted the kind of center of gravity of what liberalism had meant. Um, it's not that earlier liberals didn't care about freedom. They wanted freedom and equality for all, but they assigned institutions, including the state, like a big role in bringing that freedom about. And so that's what has gotten lost in our time, clearly, uh, in America and so many other places. And so the book is trying to ask whether we could learn something from old school liberalism and how it got replaced in the middle of the 20th century. But freedom against the state, you know, the the New Deal was the embrace of, if you will, state 
excess. So why turn against the state when the state had, the story goes, saved the U.S. from the Great Depression and the Second World War via the Green Deal or New Deal? I mean, it, it goes beyond that. I mean, of course, the state expanded terrifically in the 30s in, in this country uh, through Roosevelt's new policies. But then what really saved America from the Great Depression, which, you know, returned in the late 30s was the war economy when, you know, this is little known, but the U.S. government owned half the factories during World War II and told the rest what to do. So it was almost like uh, a, a plan, a planned economy. Uh, and it's in those circumstances that our gross national product doubled uh, just in the space of four years. And so what's what's amazing is that you could live through that. Uh, and then after World War II say, well, the Soviets have made the state scary. And what we need to focus on is the limits on the state. Of course, the Soviets did do scary things with the state and the state is does bad things, not just good things. But my my beef with the Cold War liberals is that they didn't kind of celebrate the state and find the its good form they basically said what matters now is freedom from the state and that proved to be fateful they probably thought they could assume that you know the new deal was done and might even get extended with universal health care which harry Tr truman first proposed but in the long run i think what won out is the views that uh, of neoliberals who existed in the in the 40s too, like Friedrich Hayek, who wrote The Road to Serfdom. Uh, and the Cold War liberals kind of weren't positioned to attack, you know, the free market, which roared back, especially after the 1970s and led to our neoliberal time with all its inequalities. So was liberalism at some point more open to the left than it is today? Or has it always aimed for centrism and bipartisan compromise? Uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a mixed bag. And I'm, I'm not trying to idealize uh, any liberalism we've ever known, because often in the 19th century, liberals embraced laissez-faire economics, kind of the values of the free market. Um, and yet liberals uh, in that same time period helped invent socialism. You know, Bernie Sanders is much more a kind of liberal socialist in the vein of uh, John Stuart Mill and other, you know, um, early liberals who realized that liberals, if they really meant to bring about a society of free and equal uh, fellow citizens needed to, you know, do something different from the market than just let it run. Um, and it, 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 it's, it's, it's really important then that liberals ha need to clean their own house and, and recognize that their, their embrace of market values, both in the old days and in our time, you know, can be counteracted you by by kind of finding other tendencies in their own tradition. And Bernie Sanders was trying to do that, I believe. So I know this is kind of a silly question, but can New Deal liberalism save liberalism from Cold War liberalism? Again, you were saying you're not trying to say any of these kinds of liberalism 
are the greatest thing in the world. But at the same time, this has been something that has been embraced uh, rhetorically at times and sometimes within policy. Can New Deal liberalism save liberalism from Cold War liberalism? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I think we'd, we shouldn't get too enthusiastic because when we look back, we see all the flaws of New Deal liberalism. I mean, for one thing, it was a New Deal chiefly for white men um, in, you know, a, a kind of economic uh, era of, you know, manufacturing, um, you know, when we 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 kind of knew how to or figured out how to create a, a more equal society um because there was you know capital and labor organized in unions that the government could force to you know um make a fairer bargain uh, over wages and benefits we don't live in that economic world now and of course we demand a liberalism that is also has a new deal for uh, people of color and women uh, and it isn't just focused on helping white male factory workers. But when uh, Bernie and so many others talk about a Green New Deal, they're saying, well, there were promising aspects of the old New Deal that can be salvaged. And I'm just saying those promising aspects are ones that are consistent with the best forms of liberalism in its history. And they can be used to then counteract Cold War liberalism and neoliberalism, which have kind of come to rule our time practically. So did pre-Cold War liberalism better understand or address the contradictions between capitalism and democracy? Was it more willing to even consider what those contradictions were than Cold War liberalism was. I think so. Um, it, it, so, you know, if you look at Cold War liberals, famous philosophers like Isaiah Berlin, they really don't talk much about the market. Um, whereas earlier liberals, um, especially ones who, you know, were called new liberals in Britain or progressives in the United States, really did grapple for generations with uh, the kind of growing need to chasten the market and to kind of rupture liberalism's old associations with laissez-faire economics, the values of the free market. And I'm not saying they ever got far enough, but at least they talked about this problem and tried to address it. And that's why John Stuart Mill became a socialist. That's why these new liberals and progressives called for, you know, income tax and redistributive policy and a, a welfare state. And, and of course, actually invented it far more, you know, thoroughly in Western Europe and, and, and Northern Europe than ever in the United States. But they were on the right track before liberalism was redefined in terms of freedom from interference from states. But the state is the the agent that, you know, takes our taxes and redistributes them, that builds, you know, public sector uh, goods like, you know, healthcare markets, if we could ever get there like Europeans have and so forth and so on. You write that in the Cold War, liberalism's relationship to emancipation and reason rooted in the 18th century intellectual departure known as the Enlightenment, disintegrated, expectant hope now felt naive, and the aspiration of universal freedom and equality 
was denounced as a pretext for repression and violence. Hope was naive. Did Cold War liberalism usher in a sense of hopelessness? And if so, why offer hopelessness instead of hope? Well, I think we have to get empathetic briefly to understand them, but also denounce their mistake. So they're, you know, they're they're redefining liberalism in the years after World War II, uh, when the Soviets, uh, unlike after World War One, are powerful. They've beaten Adolf Hitler, you know, primarily, and they claim the mantle of humanity's uh, future and say they're going to bring it about. They say their movement of communism started in the Enlightenment and is where reason and science actually lead. And that if you're for progress, you must be on their side of the Cold War. And so the Cold War liberals kind of, instead of uh, denying the Soviets, you know, claims to reason and science and progress sort of let the Soviets have those things. And they say liberalism will now be defined not in terms of the radiant future politics has to bring about, but in terms of caution and wariness about, you know, exactly the kinds of promises the Soviets were making. They said things like, well, if, if, if liberals promise uh, freedom and progress, that will just be a recipe for liberals to join the Soviet cause. And so the, the liberals kind of gave up uh, on those old promises, which they'd once stood for themselves, and instead kind of defined liberalism as a, a in, in terms of hopelessness. But that's that's, I don't think, what we need. You know, I think we need more hope, more utopianism. Uh, to give voters, to begin with them, something to believe in. They have to think that liberals stand for a, a future that's more free and equal. And if liberals don't offer the, those promises, which the Soviets once made, why would people vote for them? You point out that where the liberal imperialism of the 19th century had at least promised to spread freedom and equality across the globe, early Cold War liberalism gave up the gave up any global designs in order to preserve the West as a refuge for liberty in a world of tyranny. As it stands today, does liberalism promise to still spread freedom and equality, despite it now focusing instead on preserving the West as a refuge for liberty? Does liberalism today still claim to be the liberalism of the 19th century, uh, the liberalism of pre-Cold War liberalism, which you argue was abandoned but after the uh, Cold War began, I, I don't. I don't think uh, liberalism is is uh, like nineteenth-century liberalism anymore. Um, and you might say that's a good thing because a great many nineteenth-century liberals, like John Stuart Mill, this English philosopher, were imperialists. They said, "If we're going to have a radiant future for humanity, freedom, and progress, we just have to take over all the benighted lands." around the world and rule them ourselves to kind of prepare uh, a different future than the stagnant one that uh, non-white peoples live in. And we can now see that was all a rationalization for 
you know, avarice and violence. And of course, uh, peoples of the world in the end seize their own freedom, at least to get their own states, which is why we have, you know, a couple hundred states um, nowadays. But what the Cold War liberals did, I think, was even worse because they kind of concluded that um, if emancipation is like a road to the serfdom and it will lead basically into the clutches of the Soviet Union, then why bother trying to spread freedom and equality in a new way, in a kind of post-imperial world? And so the Cold War liberals I talk about were basically Atlanticists. They said, you know, at the best, the, 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 the global North can do is stand out as a beacon of freedom for the rest of the world. Now, it's true that later on, some liberals and neocons uh, in particular began to decide they should spread freedom uh, too. But the way that we've done so lately has been either through neoconservative war making, as if like toppling uh, rulers around the world is a recipe for freedom, or we've said the best way to spread freedom is the neoliberal way to spread markets. And I think neither one has has really convinced many people around the world that the West does care uh, about the future of freedom on the world stage. Um, you know, neoconservative war has made the world much worse off. Neoliberalism is, you know, is something that I think deserves a harder look because it has modestly decreased global inequality, but it's only done so, so by creating, um, you know, galloping inequality in in many countries, not just ours, where class inequality has been increasing uh, in the neoliberal era, but essentially a lot of other places too. China, though communist, has in a sense turned neoliberal and has had inequality spike there kind of more rapidly than in any society in human history, India, and so on down the list. So, you know, my sense is that at least the 19th century liberals thought we need government to uh, spread freedom and equality. What we haven't done is find a new crop of liberals that is willing to embrace um, a, a form of, of, of global liberation that works through institutions, but is not just about war or economic freedom alone. So do you think liberalism and neoliberalism, do you think they've given freedom a bad name globally? Well, you you see around the world in places like Narendra Modi's India that uh, li liberalism is no longer fashionable. I mean, it was the only game in town for a while after 1989. Uh, and a lot of people around the world, uh, when Francis Fukuyama said liberalism stood at the end of history, didn't realize initially that what that meant was a, a neoliberal markets. Uh, and now there's a period of backlash when people around the world are, um, you know, they, they're not sure that the kind of freedom that has been spreading lately is the kind they want. Uh, and, you know, we can debate, you know, why it is that we're seeing this global democratic recession, but I think neoliberalism has a lot to do with it. So 
the the suggestion is of, of the book is that next gen liberals need to look out at the world and say we need to offer you know a, a more genuine um theory of freedom and equality on the world stage than the, the effective effectively neoliberal one we've been hawking you know under the auspices of the international monetary fund and the world bank and through other policy um mechanisms for for generations you write that cold war liberals far from advocating greater equality of conditions they argued that liberty faced extinction if calls for economic fairness got the upper hand the poor at home and especially around the world preferred bread to choice and were willing to swap freedom if not a swamp freedom if not carefully patrolled so the assumption is that the options for the poor are either food or liberty what explains the liberal view that it was one or the other and that you cannot have both or even that one would not lead to the other? Why did it come to down to this assumption that you can have one or the other, food or liberty, but you can't have both? Well, I, I, I think that's a great question, Chuck. I, I would say that the answer, you know, has to be multifaceted. So, I mean, one, one, one dimension of it again is that the soviets claimed to stand for a, a a form of liberation that would be egalitarian and you know create classless societies although of course they never actually achieved that goal themselves and indeed joseph stalin began to worry so much about the promises he was making that he started to denounce equality mongering as he called it you know people were you know, had had drunk his Kool-Aid and he needed to tell them not to expect a classless society, at least immediately. Um, and yet Cold War liberals, in the face of the promise of a classless society, said we have to choose freedom and reject equality as a pipe dream or as a, a, a ruse that communists will use to, you know, establish a totalitarian government, you know, it, you know, at home, abroad, anywhere, everywhere. Um, and so part of the answer is that once again, the liberals, in a sense, let the Soviets own the, the ideal of equality and liberals kind of retreated to liberty uh, in this frightening uh, world of the Soviets in which the Soviets were so attractive. But then I think there's another answer, which is that, uh, you know, as the world history after the Second World War continued, a lot of of uh, new dictators around the world, um, you know, took power and began to say, well, we need to follow the Soviet script um, and promise liberty someday, but provide kind of development uh, now. And actually, a lot of um, a lot of people like Walt Rostow kind of agreed with that. Um, and in the Vietnam era, you know, the there were principled arguments from Samuel Huntington and others to kind of back despots around the world on the grounds that they understood that. Uh, not in the global north, but in the global south, it was necessary to develop their societies under authoritarian auspices before freedom could be, you know, 
uh, possible. And so once again, you know, this this framework led a lot of liberals just to assume that you couldn't have both freedom and equality. You had to kind of choose one or the other. Uh, and in in the face of kind of global politics, a lot of Cold War liberals actually said liber- liberty will be for later for the peoples of the world. And they for now, they need despots to, you know, improve their living, their standards of living so they can be ready for freedom someday, hypothetically. So what we're told is that it was absolutely necessary for liberalism to distance itself from any association with communism or anything leftist to out anti-Soviet Union, the right, in order to maintain power in the U.S. Had liberalism not overreacted to the Soviet Union, the way conservatives overreacted to the Soviet Union, would they have been seen as weak in protecting the U.S. from communist totalitarianism, if not tyranny? Did the people of the United States demand that whatever ideology you happen to embrace, whatever party you belong to, we must overreact to the perceived threat of Soviet communist tyranny? I don't think so. I mean, I I think that there were other possibilities, although obviously historians debate this. I mean, just remember that Franklin Roosevelt's vice president through 1944 was Henry Wallace, who, uh, you know, was a a an extraordinarily progressive uh, Midwesterner who uh, really thought it kind of Christian socialism was going to be the wave of the future. Uh, including the American future, he called for a century of the common man. Uh, but he was, you know, cashiered. And later, of course, he's uh, his campaign in 1948 for president was infiltrated by by communists, and uh, he lost. I I have the sense though that you know the Democratic Party for a long time, while of course it's anti-communist as of the 40s, still is living out FDR's uh, framework, trying to promise Americans uh, a a new deal, what Truman calls fair deal, and what Lyndon Johnson calls a great society that will be characterized by more social justice than liberals had ever provided to that point. Um, My trouble is that at the very same time, in America, Democrats were still trying to figure out with a lot of mistakes how they could, you know, extend the New Deal. These liberal thinkers, uh, the Cold War liberals of the very same era, you know, weren't talking about that problem the way that older liberals had. And so the scary thing for me is that these thinkers who, as of the 40s, talk only about liberty and treat the state as you know, likely to be totalitarian and think of equality and promises around it as a road to serfdom. They anticipate where the Democratic Party actually went after uh, LBJ. So as of Jimmy Carter, we now can see that the Democratic Party embraced neoliberalism. And we can debate whether Joe Biden's beyond that choice. But um, if that's true, then these Cold War liberals are kind of, you know, setting a, up a time bomb uh, that later kind of explodes in practice and and helps neoliberals win. So that's that's my argument. It's not that 
there aren't, you know, better versions of the Democratic Party that we could go back and try to revive um, it because there are. Uh, it's that these Cold War liberals helped mislead the Democratic Party or help provide rationalizations for its continuing neoliberalism in our day. One of those rationalizations is that campaign finance laws changed in the late 70s to be far more loose, to be far more liberal, if you will. Uh, so they had no choice. Both political parties, if they wanted to get that corporate money that was going to be necessary for future campaign financing, they had to put uh, more of a priority on privatization, more of a priority on neoliberalism. Were both parties forced to be more and more neoliberal, to be more and more corporate friendly, simply because of the rationalization of campaign financing? I think that's a big factor, but you know, it, it seems like it's a complicated and multifaceted picture. To, you're right that um, both parties became neoliberal uh, and we shouldn't think of the Democrats as holding out against, you know, Ronald Reagan, but r really drinking Reagan's Kool-Aid. But in part, I think it's they the Democrats turned neoliberal because they wanted to. It was credible that the state couldn't do the work that earlier liberals uh, thought it could. This was the neoconservative critique of the welfare state before neoconservatives began to, you know, be more identified with uh, warmongering, and so I think you're absolutely right that there's there's just a very simple material explanation for the turn of the Democrats to neoliberalism, which is that they became, you know, a party of money and 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 wealthy donors um, because of you know, changes in campaign finance. But I don't think we should, you know, focus only on that factor because the truth is that, you know, politicians like Bill Clinton really did believe in neoliberalism, appointed Robert Rubin and other neoliberals basically to run the country. And there was no need to do that if, uh, you know, even if, you know, they there there was a need to kind of curry favor with wealthy donors um, and so we need a bigger explanation for the Democratic Party's turn to neoliberalism. If Cold War liberalism has not had the success it promised as a bulwark against the rise of the far right, then why is it still pursued? If it failed to the point that it could not stop Trumpism, why is it still pursued? What's well, a great question, Chuck? You know, I think there are, there are a few answers. One is just that you know there are ideologues who whose whose job it is to you know eternally repeat the the, the mantra of Cold War liberalism, neoliberalism, neoconservatism, no matter you know how contradicted by experience. And the fact is that those those intellectuals. Uh, and publicists, you know, lots of journalists uh, along the way were were given lots of power after 1989. And the New Republic magazine in particular became a kind of central organ. You know, even though, as I mentioned earlier, that magazine had been founded after World War One in the name of of progressivism and paving the road to the New Deal after 1989, especially, it became a kind of organ of this kind of thought. And those people, 
you know, had the ear of a lot of influential policymakers. But then I think there's another, you know, part of the explanation, which is that these Cold War ideas have been like comfort blankets. And it's almost as if they're they're simple minded kind of framing of what's going on in the world. We Americans and liberals kind of got everything right. And then there are just these enemies that somehow keep, you know, looming uh, communists, terrorists. Later, there are internal enemies, you know, white nationalists that there's there. The, the failures of liberalism aren't ever part of the reason why these enemies keep looming. And instead, actually, what liberals in the, this Cold War vein need to do is double down on their antagonism towards these waves of enemy with without inquiring, well, well, why are there these constant waves of, of enemies uh, such that liberalism is always in this kind of antagonistic posture? Um, and so I think it's a kind of, you know, the story has to be one where Cold War liberalism became kind of self-confirming and self-fulfilling. And a good example of that is responses to the Ukraine war. I mean, my own view is that Vladimir Putin, um, you know, did something, you know, brutal and crass and, in and not to mention illegal in invading Ukraine. But, um, after you know, a, a kind of at least a brief period of of national soul searching about American warmongering. A, a lot of Cold War liberals took Putin's act as just an occasion to like forget all the, you know, debate that we'd been having about endless war um, in Afghanistan, drones, et cetera, and just embraced a kind of crusade for freedom once again, as if like it hadn't been tarnished by the war on terror. And so my sense is that the kind of, you know, the, the, the cold war liberals got liberalism stuck in a rut and it's very hard for people to climb out of it. Um, indeed it's, it's like they want to remain there. If cold war liberalism won in defeating Soviet communism and authoritarianism, why not continue pursue it after the Cold War ended? That's what I, I think that that's the view of a Cold War liberal. But what right. happens when Cold War liberalism is pursued, but there is no Cold War? Does an embrace of Cold War liberalism need a Cold War to survive and thrive? Does it seek out a new Cold War? Well, you know, I think we now understand that the Cold War ended uh in, in principally because both the capitalist West and the communist East began to adopt austerity policies because of the coming of neoliberalism after the oil shock in the 70s. And it's just that the West, in a sense, outlasted the communist uh, regimes in, in imposing that new austerity. I mean, it's you know, it's actually very tragic in a way because the Cold War began with both kinds of regime on both sides of the Iron Curtain making promises of, you know, an abundant good life, uh, you know, more, more stuff, um, a higher standard of living. But after the 70s, both regimes had to kind of impose discipline on their citizens. And it's just that, you know, uh, the 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 west could 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 do so longer uh and the east 
Eastern regimes, you know, collapse. They, the, you know, they couldn't do that as long because of they, it, it was difficult to kind of create the legitimacy for neoliberal policies, um, especially under communist regimes. And so what happened in 1989 is that, you know, liberals kind of ran a victory lap uh, for liberalism without kind of understanding that the Cold War ended because both uh, kinds of regime had committed to neoliberalism. And liberals' response was just to embrace neoliberalism again. And I think 30 years later, we can understand that this was a dreadful mistake. Uh, and, you know, Joe Biden is running scared, uh, the rest of the Democrats, over the the backlash to neoliberalism that Donald Trump represented. And that's why you're seeing a return to, you know, national industrial policy, you know, Joe Biden doing something extraordinary, joining auto workers on the picket line uh, as if the Democrats hadn't, you know, uh, in the 90s embraced policies that destroyed the manufacturing sector through, you know, tra free trade deals, et cetera. So, you know, it's a, it's a really interesting moment where the Democrats, I think, are realizing that they made an immense mistake in 1989. And the question is, what does it take to undo it? What, what's the, what's a plausible, you know, form of liberalism in the economic sphere if liberals actually can give up neoliberalism. But why that backlash now against neoliberalism? You write Cold War liberals are once again being challenged by millennial and post-millennial generations concerned much less with enemies abroad than with economic inequality, endless war, and environmental disaster. Why now? Why did it take so long for there to be a generation that recognizes and wants to address those contradictions. What is it about millennials and post-millennials and their experience so far on this earth that allows them right. to more clearly see these contradictions and their desire to act upon them? So I, I think, you know, if you buy my, my view that like Cold War liberals kind of got comfortable in their views, well, kids born after the Cold War or, you know, late enough that it didn't define their lives uh, don't have the same experiences that would lead them to return to, you know, this kind of security blanket uh, that cold war liberals have wrapped themselves in. And of course, millennials then respond, you know, in droves to the 2008 financial crisis, which leads them to, you know, see that their future is one of, you know, bullshit jobs or outright joblessness, uh, you know, class stagnation. Uh, and and they then look out and see that, you know, the the old proletariat of the United States, the you know, the white male workers who who who's, you know, who were the beneficiaries of Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal, they are in revolt because they aren't are are treated by neoliberals to stagnating wages and understand that their grandchildren aren't going to be the beneficiaries of the kinds of you know national economic expansions that prior generations of Americans did so you know i i would say there's the millennial story which is about young people and generational change and then there's the kind of you know 
um, white male working class story, which is really about people who were were punished by neoliberalism and are in revolt in consequence. We have been speaking with Samuel Moyne. He is a historian and author of Liberalism Against Itself, Cold War Intellectuals, and the Making of Our Times. You can find our past interviews with Sam at our website, thisishell.com, by searching on his last name, M-O-Y-N, Moyne. You can follow him on Twitter, at Samuel Moyne. One last question for you, and as always, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer or our audience is going to hate your response. And Jonathan Chait will too, I promise you that. So Sam, you write that like no other event in the tumultuous years of Trump's presidency, the riot on January 6th, 2021, that interfered with the Congress's ratification of the successors, electoral win frightened observers into thinking the end was nigh. Whether or not that was true, the sense of fragility that had haunted Cold War liberals and had led them to defend liberal essentials rather than argue for an ambitious liberal reinvention of politics and society became existentially compelling to millions. At most, they backed calls for renovation briefly and defensively to avoid disaster. In illiberal regimes like China's, with uh, Trump convinced the establishment to treat as a gargantuan threat, or Russia's, which invaded the liberal democratic state of Ukraine in early 2022, intensified the monetary posture. That is a posture of giving or serving a warning. You add that liberals did not appear to learn the actual lesson Cold War liberalism teaches or that of a global war on terror declared against shadowy and totalitarian enemies. Exaggerating risks leads to overreaction, even as other threats are minimized or missed and longstanding problems fester that exacerbate the challenges prompting overreaction in the first place. So people like Jonathan Chait, who had a uh, critique of your book in The New Yorker, but was kind enough to put your name in the headline, although it is Samuel Moyne can't stop blaming Trumpism on liberals. Liberalism against itself makes an incoherent attack on liberalism. It was nice enough to put your name in the headline, but you know, that's about (laughs) it. So so many uh, liberals would argue that these are real threats. These are not exaggeration. So let's just say they are real threats. And as big of a threat as liberal state there is, there's no exaggeration. Is the best way to counter these threats to double down on the current state of liberalism, or is it to offer something new that does not make liberalism as precarious as it seems to be now? If people like Jonathan Chait really want to protect us from tyranny, is the best way to do so to continue to not have any criticism of the current state of liberalism, neoliberal and neoconservatism. Is that the best way to protect us against tyranny? No. I mean, I I am with you that there are threats to liberalism and there are there are, you know, there are you know real concerns right now about whether it will survive but it seems to me that Donald Trump's election in the first place and then the events of January 6 are really like a wake up call uh to look inwards too and take some of the blame for those events and figure out how our, our choices as liberals uh let led to the challenges that liberalism is so you know clearly facing and what that means then is uh you know to figure out what it would mean to make liberal 
ideas, a society of free and equal citizens, more credible to more people so that enemies, you know, are just not as scary as they were before. If we, you know, doom scroll as resistance liberals and just think getting rid of Trump through this or that, you know, lawsuit will abate the rage that led to Trump, then I think we'll just see more of the same, more threats. Uh, and so I'm trying to break out of the doom loop of having endless enemies by saying maybe, you know, to an extent, liberals have been their own worst enemy and they can save liberalism only by recognizing this fact. I know you have a very brief amount of time left, but how did uh, and if this is too big of a question to ask it with very little time left, uh, how did the Trump administration, how did President Trump challenge neoliberalism? I don't think he did. I mean, I think he actually intensified it. Uh, he passed an enormous tax cut. Um, but I think that he his credibility to millions of voters, I think, is only, you know, explicable, uh, you know, as a result of the toll of decades of neoliberalism. And there's no doubt that, you know, when he said things like about American carnage, he was, you know, telling victims of, uh, you know, the policies of both parties that he was there for them and he won their vote and then went on advancing the interests of the rich. So there is a debate amongst conservatives about how to like save Trump's intention from his execution. I think that's a crazy debate. Uh, but I do think liberals should take from the fact that it's happening you know, a warning that they also need to save liberalism's intention from liberalism's execution, which is involved, you know, a, a lot of neoliberalism and neoconservatism in our lifetimes. Another fantastic book, Sam, really great. Again, the name of the book is Liberalism Against Itself, Cold War Intellectuals and the Making of Our Times. Thank you so much for being on the show. Really appreciate it. And you know I'm going to annoy you in the future with future radio interview requests. Well, I insist on it. Thanks so much, Chuck. <laughs> it's right. great to be back. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this is hell. If our conversation with Sam Moyne made you finally realize what has gone so horribly, horribly wrong with liberalism and how we ended up with the dual nightmares of profits over people, neoliberalism and corporate sponsored military interventionism via neoconservatism, show your appreciation for completely commercial free. This is hell providing over 20 seven years of content that you cannot find anywhere else giving airtime to analysis like that of Samuel Moynes that you won't hear anywhere else and providing new content to you absolutely free every week since 1996 including ne nearly 10 years of free shows that you can listen to at thisishell.com right now and doing so without accepting any corporate grants or any money of any kind from any corporation we're so not-for-profit we can't afford to be a non-profit show your appreciation for all of that and help us keep this is hell online and on air and assist us in our efforts to make every show we've ever done available for free at our website by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus patreon podcast which goes live 
on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell every Thursday morning at 10 a.m. Chicago time. Or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support where you can see all the ways you can help us out here at This Is Hell. And somebody has to because you know that to corporate and public establishment media, this is hell. Dan, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far. Uh... This week's question from hell is what could possibly be giving you hope? And on Twitter, or uh, as it's called now, X formerly formerly known as Twitter. I hate the fact that people no longer can just say Twitter. They have to say X formerly known as Twitter, (laughs) which is a really long name for a company. They should just go with X, I think. Yeah, I think that's probably <laughs> works, but it's taking a while. It sure is. Uh, Jamie K says cocaine. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> and uh, uh, got a l- another listener. It's got a, kind of a symbol here. Jif. Uh, uh, it's just an awesome graphic of the end. Oh, the, like a film yeah, credit. Yeah, yeah exactly. And uh, we got some more on Discord. Let me get to that. Again, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our stuff by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. And uh, we've got... Uh, sorry. Uh, some... We've got quite a bit. Uh, on Discord? I'm, uh, yes. Well, the... Uh, more than usual. Okay. Uh, Mr. Chops says Hillary 2028. Wow. <laughs> Skipping 2024, going all the way to 2028. Uh, you know, uh, cyborg Hillary. Exactly. So, uh, Kim G, hot weather cherries. All right. <laughs> and Cam's got uh, hope written along the left column, and then he writes, having one more psychedelic experience <laughs> H-O-P-E yes. I like that so again you can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page you can tweet it at us you, know, you can post it at our Patreon page post it on Discord post it at the This Is Hell uh, Facebook group uh, Welcome to the Hell Hole and uh, we'll have that all that coming up the rest of your answers to this week's question from Hell following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth keeping it real real deep in debt since 1996 This Is Hell and if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to our Patreon podcast, patreon.com slash this is how this week on Patreon. After two weeks in a row of relatively positive monologues about being inspired by our guests and actually attaining some level of hope on a show called This Is Hell, which is freaking out people on X, formerly known as Twitter. It's all about, so this week on and during my monologue on Patreon, it's all about white privilege, white supremacy, and Nazis. I know inspirational, then filled with hope, and then it's all about Nazis. In other words, we're talking about the upcoming presidential election, which is only 13 unlucky months away between now and then. We will be pummeled with rants from both sides of at least he's better than the other guy, which seems to be the only reason anyone votes anymore in the United States. And boy, that sure does make your heart pound for democracy, doesn't it? Worse yet, we will be bombarded on social media by 
friends, likely soon to be former friends if the political parties and the press have their way, as well as family members who turn into trolls whenever an election comes around. And talking about trolling, did you see House Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan's political stunt at the Fraternal Order of Police headquarters in the West Loop here in Chicago on Tuesday, which was ostensibly a hearing on crime in the city of Chicago? Not only was the stunt at the police union headquarters, the same police union that protects cops who are charged with deadly crimes, but the witnesses included a Fox News correspondent. And Representative Jim Jordan himself has yet to have any hearings on January 6th because he supported the people that engaged in that crime. People like, well, members of the Chicago Police Department and the Fraternal Order of Police. So yeah, my monologue on Patreon is a response to all that, too. Also on Patreon, we're playing our first interview with investigative journalist Matt Kennard from back in 2009. You might remember Matt being on the show earlier this year when we spoke with him about his book, Silent Coup, How Corporations Overthrew Democracy, which listeners absolutely loved. It's a book he co-wrote with another past guest on the show, Claire Provost. Matt's first book, Irregular Army, How the U.S. Military Recruited Neo-Nazis, Gang Members, and Criminals to Fight the War on Terror, was published back in 2012, and as soon as it came out, we had him on the show. But Matt had been on prior to that, way back in 2009, the interview that we're sharing this week. After posting an article at Salon.com that would eventually lead to his first book, the article came uh, with the blunt headline, Neo-Nazis are in the army now. So seeing as how Nazis will be a big part of the 2024 presidential election, on this week's Patreon, we're playing a 2009 talk on Nazis being trained to kill all at taxpayer expense. But the only way you can hear all of that, my attempt to prepare all of us for the next 13 grueling months of presidential campaign coverage and the trolls who do nothing but make it worse in a 2009 talk about Nazis in the army is to subscribe at patreon.com slash this is hell coming up jeff with the moment of truth the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell and we will be announcing this week's winner we'll also tell you what's happening on next week's show you are listening to god's favorite radio show prove me wrong this is hell i know you have hefe on the line what? postmodern cult of imaginary problems. Don't believe anything? Why would you? You're a cyborg. Donna Haraway, described at times as a feminist primatologist, now professor emerita in the History of Consciousness program at UC Santa Cruz, wrote a famous article about how our identities need no longer be slaves to history or past myth, rendering us freer than the old human species. Cyborgs. Although the idea offered a great deal of empowerment in the early to middle decades of postmodernity, she was obviously a premature ahistorian, as was the sloppy Francis Fukuyama. The difference with FF was that his declaration was triumphalist rather than empowering. It was meant to disempower the collapsed communist bloc through gloating so that their betters might dictate the terms of their next incarnation. The gloating was unwarranted at best, at worst, willfully ignorant. 
There's a lyric from the Beatles' Abbey Road album from a track about a scientist who is victimized by a serial killer. Joan was quizzical, studied pataphysical science in the home. Pataphysics, for those unaware, is the science of imaginary solutions. It was created by a unique artist, writer, and cycling enthusiast working in the late 19th century, Alfred Jarry. The aesthetic descendant of Russian absurdists and precursor to the Dadaists and Surrealists, his most famous character is Per Ubu, which inspired the name of the David Thomas post-punk band. His most famous play, Ubu Hua, King Ubu, sets the Ubu character's grotesquely omnivorous id to navigating the palace intrigue and battlefield horror of a chaotic history play ending with Perrin Mare Ubu escaping in a ship that happens to pass near the kingdom where Prince Hamlet met his fate. If any character from literature embodies the myriad flaws of the United States' 45th and most impeached and indicted president, it is Per Ubu. Dada and Maga were sired by the same type of father, a bloviating, voluminous, avaricious, and rapacious thing never meant by the heavens to reproduce, let alone breathe life, into a movement. If pataphysics is the science of imaginary solutions, Magaphysics is the cult of imaginary problems. This raises an obvious question. If Dada, operating according to pataphysical laws, and Maga, slobbering and spasming under the force of Magaphysics, were to have a fight, who would win? The first round begins as a traditional boxing match. Dada, in this corner, is clad in traditional boxing trunks and gloves and wears the traditional mouth guard. She intends to subvert these traditions as the fight progresses, but one cannot subvert without illustrating the staid convention one intends to deconstruct, thus giving both the fighter and the crowd stable ground from which to launch themselves into space or anti-space as circumstances develop. The difference is that all her boxing gear is made of cheese, that fromage of Alsace, Munster cheese. In that corner, Maga. She wears no mouth guard, as she believes they cause one's saliva to build up the mouth to toxic levels, weakening one's punches and maneuverability and causing tooth decay. Big toothpaste has pushed the mouth guard on athletes, she says. She wears no high-top boxing boots nor padded gloves nor any foot nor hand covering. She has decided unilaterally to invent the sport of mixed martial arts, although she lacks training in even one martial art. And in the octagon, which this square boxing ring is emphatically not, fighters wear no gear on their hands and feet, not even of the fromagenary genus. A bell signals the beginning of the bout, bouncing on the balls of their feet to indicate readiness to evade blows. The fighters dance toward each other. Maga makes two low-effort feints with her right. Dada answers with similar motions. Now Maga lunges with a roundhouse left to Dada's face. Dada's face comes off, spring-loaded, smacking Maga in her own surprised mug. Dada's gloves launch themselves on cartoon springs into the surprise Maga's face and chest. Other parts of Dada's grotesque form, her breasts, her knees, her belly, all launch themselves on springs at their opponent, pummeling her torso and physiognomy. 
MAGA staggers on rubber band legs, the first creative effort at metaphorical movement she's attempted so far. But it may be too late. She falls against the ropes, keeping herself from sinking to the mat with her arms hooked over the top rope as if supported by a cut man on one side and a coach, Burgess Meredith, on the other. Very evocative and pathetic. Now, four and twenty crows fly out from inside Maga's open body, pecking Maga's eyes and mouth and pulling at her hair. The crowd goes wild. Maga's blood spurts out of her eye sockets like fountain jets. The blood turns to little Maga corpses in the air, falling to the mat like hail. The little corpses rain down, their pitter-pats as they hit the mat, so numerous they can be heard above the cheering crowd. For a solid minute, the transformation of blood into corpses that could fit in your hand continues to shower the ring with tiny deaths. The cheering of the crowd fades as the grim vision before them starts to evoke less sportsmanlike scenes. Maga falls to the mat, utterly defeated and dead. All is silent now except for the celebratory howling of jackals. Dada's hand is taken by the referee, who is a great blue flamingo. The announcer's microphone descends from the ceiling. The announcer, a steampunk robot made of mechanical parts from century-old farm equipment, declares Dada the winner of the fight by almost instantaneous murder. How does it feel, Dada, to have won this historic fight so easily? Dada speaks. All is despair and decay. I'm going to Disneyland. Syphilis returns to bite us in the balloons. Whom do we blame and whom praise? What truth is there when all stories, true and false, must compete for clicks and coins on the Golgotha of ever-present high-resolution mushrooms and donkeys kong? If the passion be considered as an uphill bicycle race, cannot the cross be born and reborn as a tale told by an idiot or even as a science video narrated by Neil deGrasse Tyson? And who shall lay the pipes? And once laid, who shall pay the piper? And once paid, who shall lay the plumber? And once plumbed, who shall pay the abyss? The abyss looks into your accounts and finds you double-cooking the books, and we all shall pay. So why not make it worth the paper we no longer need on. All is nothing. Nothing. All. By now the entire arena, walls fallen, is one vast landscape of corpses from horizon to horizon, picked at by crows and hyenas who have massacred the jackals. Above the ground, the arms and legs of many of the dead dangle over high-tension wires and sway in the hollow wind. The walrus and the carpenter face the setting sun from the shore of the dying earth. They are the last to breathe. The soup is done, but there was no one left to dunk the bread. This has been the Moment of Truth. Good day. So I assume this was a Live Nation event? Of course. Are you kidding me? <laughs> it was expensive stuff. <laughs> All those crows. Yeah, that's a pretty good show you put on there. The, That's uh, a king's ransom of crows. I would definitely want to almost a murder. Uh, I would I would definitely like to go to that event and uh, up until the end. Then it kind of got a little bit grim. But the rest of the event sounded great. Oh man, it only seemed grim. It was a jolly jolly time. <laughs> All right, Jeffy. So yeah. I will talk to you in a couple of weeks. Oh yeah, you know, oh well, a couple of weeks. Yeah. I knew there was no, there's no show. Next, Next week, week yep. but so the following two, week too? No, no. We'll, we'll talk.
We're going to talk. All right. Talk to you soon. Stay beautiful. Bye-bye. Live from Lance Stone from the Potawatomi people, this is Hell. Dan, do we have any more answers to the question from Hell that were posted at the very last minute? And could oh. you kill Jeff's microphone so we don't have to hear him breathing? Uh, <laughs> one last breath, Jeff, before I cut you off. Nope, he's gone. <laughs> uh, I what, don't what, think we got it. And what's this one. week's question from hell again? This week's question from hell is what could possibly be giving you hope? The answers I liked most were on Patreon, Andrew M. saying eventually... Entropy will prevail. That's entropy as in a lack of order and collapse into despair. I like that one. Much like what Jeff was just describing. I really like that one, too. Uh, Mike the Giga Grouch saying, giving up hope. Rob Hoffman, uh, who gave me this chair that I'm sitting in right now, uh, saying give, uh, saying four grams of, mush, of mushrooms. Four grams. Wow. Those better be fresh because you are going to be tripping for a very long time. I did like Meister Chops saying, Hillary 2028. On Facebook, Adam A. saying delusion. Uh, Dan K. saying the comfort of the grave. Uh, Let's see. Warren L. saying the earth will be fine without humans. Uh, Neil C. says the Philadelphia Phillies tagline for playoff baseball, this is what's giving him hope, is, get this, Red October, which is weird. Uh, Andy F. saying impermanency. John T. saying nothing. Jesse N. saying Obama. Doug M. saying dope. Uh, there's a lot of really good ones. Clint B. also said uh, Barack Obama. Uh, oh, man, there's so many good answers. But I agree with you, Dan. I think this week's winner is Andrew M. saying eventually entropy will prevail. That makes you the winner, Andrew M., and we'll be contacting you and trying to get your mailing address from you so you can tell us what piece of This Is Hell merchandise you would like to have sent to your home ASAP. So, congratulations. My answer to this week's question from hell, what can possibly be giving you hope? Lottery tickets. And the fact that I have next week off, but mostly lottery tickets. Thanks to everyone who sent in an answer to this week's question from hell. A huge thank you to this week's producers, Dan Kugler, Will Ippen. Thanks to Nick Mann coming in and uh, being trained yet again by Dan uh, Kugler. He will be, uh, Nick, it looks like we'll be producing our first live show back in two Mondays. Thanks to Sebastian Vupper, Ronald Magaldi, Jeff Dorchin, Richard Norwood, Alexander Jerry, Theron Humiston, Pete Valvanis, all just because. Talk to you tomorrow, Thursday, on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Not tomorrow, next week, right now. Just go to patreon.com right now, and uh, you can hear my uh, best attempts at preparing for all of us for another horrible presidential election cycle, and we'll play a 2009 interview on Nazis in the U.S. military. This is Hell Office Hours returns next Wednesday. It's going to be a very important Office Hours on Wednesday, October 4th, because it's Will Ippen's birthday, and it's the day after my birthday, and it's the day before I'm getting a wisdom tooth extracted. So I hope you can join us for This is Hell Office Hours next Wednesday, but more importantly, I hope to see all of you at the This is or the uh, Carrie's Anniversary annual second annual 50th anniversary party at Carrie's Lounge Saturday September 30th happening all day 
at Carrie's 2251 West Devon Avenue and the closing of the This Is Art Art Show. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. There is only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's set of shows. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and remembering that next week we still will be playing classic interviews all week long at thisishell.com, so make sure you keep tuning in. Just remember, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.